Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Today we are going to finish what we were going to finish last week, and then we're going to finish Romans chapter 11. This is such, gosh, this is so good. This is such a rich um, passage, rich pericope, a rich chunk of scripture. So before we get started, though, I got two really great, well, one really great question from two separate small groups, which was... Um, that I had mentioned in Romans eleven twelve, we were talking about how if the trespass of Israel means that the Gentiles are brought to faith, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So if by rejecting the Messiah, the rest of the world comes to Christ. What? This is part of that Paul, you know, Paul's super abundant grace, an excess of what you can even imagine. How much more will happen when they are fully included? Honestly, I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> it's so big. I know what the full inclusion of Israel would look like. I don't know what the how much more is. We can't comprehend something that much more. And I had posited that this raises the question, or the hope at least, that there is a chance for grace to extend, at least for Israel, but beyond the mortal life. So I got some really good questions about this. And it made me realize that in... Okay, this course is called Cosmic Revolution, and that's on purpose. I'm constantly up here harping about, like, we need to think cosmic. And I probably have not been as clear as I should be about what that means, so I thought about this. And there are two primary um, thrusts that challenge our sort of contemporary, cultural, 21st century, Protestant, post-enlightenment stew that we're all swimming in all the time that require us to adopt a biblical worldview that is radically different from ours. The first you are probably familiar with, which is, and we spent so much time on this in Romans 5, or the first five books of Romans, that sin in Scripture, especially the New Testament, is not primarily something we do it is a power to which we are enslaved. We, Protestant, 21st century, post-enlightenment, guilt-ridden, like Father Clint was saying on Sunday, we spend a lot of time thinking like, well, gee, was that a sin or was that just something I feel bad about? Was that a sin or was that evil? Can something be sinful but not evil? Can something be evil but not sinful? This is, these are not questions that are live in the New Testament. Primarily for Paul in Romans, and really, gosh, throughout the Gospels, and it comes especially to the four in the epistles, sin is a power to which we are enslaved. Actions matter. 
But it's not that we do a sin. Sin is a condition we are born into that we can't get ourselves out of. We don't get to decide to stop sinning. If we could, you wouldn't need to come to church. Just decide it. Problem solved. So that's the first kind of cosmic decision of a world that God made good of humans that he made to bear forth his glory, to live in harmony with him and one another, which is under this curse. It's under this slavery. And so all of us end up trapped in this power of sin and death, and we desperately need someone to save us from that power. That's the first kind of cosmic lens that we um, that rises to the surface as we start to look at Paul. And so we have things like the dominion of sin and death, the reign, and the dominion of grace that is possible, grace and righteousness that begins to be possible in Jesus Christ as this war is still going on. We have things like the creation groaning in labor pains because even the cosmos, planets, suns, stars, plants, animals, everything is under this curse. It's not supposed to be like this, and it is waiting for something. And this leads us to the second cosmic lens that we need to hold on to, which is that the New Testament, and especially Paul, is not primarily concerned with heaven and hell. Those concepts exist, but not the way we think about them. So we have this sort of popular Christian narrative of like, you are born, and then you go through life, and you start sinning. And if you're sinning, you can't be saved. So then you turn to Jesus Christ, and you accept him as your savior, and then when you die, your body goes away, and your soul goes to hell. No, heaven. (laughs) I was just making sure you were paying attention. (laughs) You're born, and you sin, and then you accept Christ, and then you're saved, and then you go to heaven. And that's the goal, right? That heaven is the goal. And this, I think, can lead to, you know, this can lead to problems that the church has always had. For example, Pre-Reformation, the Roman church, which at the time was just the church, really struggled with this. What happens to babies who die unbaptized? Hardcore Augustinian Roman Catholics, they go to hell. They suffer in hell eternally because they did not have Christ. What happens to people who live in a remote village on a remote island in Polynesia who die without Christ? They go to hell. They don't have Christ, they go to hell. See how cut and dry that is? That's why we like it. <laughs> we want to know this is a human, human desire. Who is in and who is out? Well, it's easy. You have Christ, you're in. You're going to heaven when you die. You don't have Christ, you're out. You're going to hell. Unfortunately, this is not the biblical picture. Or maybe fortunately. I would suggest fortunately. <laughs> This is not the biblical picture, which is Paul is not primarily concerned with what happens when we die. For Paul, for the early church, and for our tradition, death is a stop on a much longer journey 
a journey we get almost no information about, <laughs> that ends with the final consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, talks about being saved, he's not talking about going to heaven when you die. He's talking about this final moment of reckoning when the Lord God, the crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ, will return to judge the living and the dead. This is in our creed, right? So remember, I keep saying, like, Paul is operating in this courtroom scene. When he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, he's not talking about what happens after you die. He's talking about what happens at the end of time when all things are caught up into Christ. And so here's another helpful image that I thought of, because this is good news. This is the sort of thing we get really like freaked out and scared about. Last things, final judgment, fire, brimstone, left behind, like all of that stuff sounds scary to us. So I was thinking about this, because I'm reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln. And Lincoln, prior to being a politician, to running for office, was part of what they call the traveling bar which is in frontier America, you have all these little towns and they don't have a courthouse. They don't have a judge, they don't have attorneys. It's like 16 farmers who are all trying to scrape out a living on the American frontier. But what happens because we're people, right? So when we live in close proximity with each other, disagreements arise. And you start arguing about land about is that my cow or your cow, about you're trying to rip me off. Well, you know, who got whose daughter pregnant, right? Like all of these things that, and then, and then tempers start to build and things start to escalate and all of a sudden you're not even talking to your next door neighbor because you think that he keeps moving his fence line over during the night and he thinks that you're trying to rip him off and all of a sudden you're not even talking and you have a broken relationship and guns are drawn, right? And so then, in this little frontier town, you guys will follow me on this, here comes the judge from outside. He doesn't have a stake in this conflict, but he sees these broken relationships. He's riding the circuit, right? This is why we call it a circuit court. There's a circuit of little towns he goes to. And he comes to this town and he listens to what the complaint is, and he judges, and he repairs the relationship. And the community is restored. This is not like a historical example. It's a theological one, right? It was inspired by a historical example. Obviously, our earthly judges don't get everything right all the time, but this is the hope of judgment. He doesn't tell this farmer, this farmer may have to pay. He may, in fact, have been in the wrong. But he doesn't say you are cast off forever. He says you two come together and shake hands because your relationship is restored and is made whole. And these can be in communion and fellowship with God and with one another. I'm now like leaving the metaphor behind. If that's what the hope of the earthly justice is, how much more 
as Paul says, will it be when we have the true judge, the judge who knows the secrets of the human heart, which Paul says on the last day when the secrets of the heart are revealed. This is scary stuff. I worry a lot about the secrets of my heart being revealed. (laughs) I don't like that. But what if I trust the judge? And what if Abraham Lincoln isn't my attorney, but the Son of God is also pleading my case? What if the judge is also my advocate? If Jesus is the judge, then judgment is not scary. And so we hope, we pray, that we can enter into a new life. For behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old things had passed away. Behold, he has made all things new. He has repaired the relationship. Those things that kept us broken and apart from each other, that kept us broken and apart from God, the good judge has come and justified, rectified, so that we may be glorified, so that we may finally be what he made us to be in the first place. Do you see how this is bigger than heaven and hell? This is the hope of salvation, not that when you die, your body goes to earth and your soul goes to heaven, which is not a non-biblical concept. I'm not telling you that's not true. I'm saying that the hope of Scripture is bigger and greater than that. The hope of Scripture is restored relationship. And so, Scripture tells us, especially in Daniel, and gosh, like most of Corinthians, Corinthians, this is what Corinthians is about, raising money and the eschaton. (laughs) Paul can do a lot in two letters. Support the saints in Jerusalem and the resurrection of the body. (laughs) That, and this is where now we're finally connecting that whole big cosmic picture back to what we talked about last week. That before that happens, before the judgment can happen, all must be raised. Now Daniel says, did I write down the verse here? Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Yes, Daniel 12, 1 to 3. Daniel says that all will be raised, some will be raised to everlasting life, some will be raised to condemnation. Maybe. This is at least a biblical statement. Paul seems to think, Paul tells us in fact, that before all are raised, all of Israel will be brought in. So, Is there a plan for those who die without accepting Christ? Well, yes, of course. God has a plan for everything. I just don't know what it is. Except for Israel. And we'll see because we're going to get here. Paul's going to make this super clear. The plan is for all of Israel, even those who are presently hardened, to be saved. This means that we not, for Israel, there is not only a hope that goes beyond death, there is a promise. Israel is God's chosen people, and they will be brought into the fold. And Paul is going to tell us how that's going to happen. 
Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. <laughs> but that's the answer. But if it's the case for Israel, it is by no means a guarantee for everyone. There is by no means, because here's the thing, like God has a different standard for Israel and everyone else. He chooses them. They are his chosen people. But here's, so this is the question. Episcopalians, Anglicans in general, have never believed that unbaptized babies go to hell. We say they go to the nearer presence of Christ. All people, when they die, um, there is nowhere they can go that God can't be. Paul has made very clear, and we'll look at this again in Romans 2, there are not two gods. There is not one God for Israel and one God for everything else. Which means that there is no place you can go or thing you can do that God cannot find you. Does this mean that those who die without accepting Christ will have a chance to accept him later? I don't know. Except for Israel. I do know about Israel <laughs> because Paul told me. I don't know. And so my belief on this, because in the Anglican Church, we pray for the dead. We do it every Sunday. We pray for those who have died because we believe their journey with Christ is continuing. Now, we mostly pray for the faithful departed, those who have died in Christ. So where I come on this issue is that I believe all Christians should hope that grace extends beyond death and also live as though it maybe doesn't. <laughs> Does that make sense? So we don't, it's not that your life on earth doesn't matter. All of life is, is the school, the training ground. Paul is clear we will be judged on our works. And yet we can hope that maybe God's grace is greater than we had thought. Because what we do know, we don't know hardly anything about heaven. We know even less about hell from Scripture. There's a lot of stuff in the tradition. The Roman Catholic Church got, like, very interested in this in the Middle Ages. Very interested. They had whole schemas about, like, you could flowchart your way to where you were going, right? Protestants have never really had that. Calvinists a little bit do. Um, but the question is not, where are you going? The question is, who do you trust? Who are you putting your trust in? We know two things. We know God will judge in Christ, we know that he will, his justice is perfect. And we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are all things we've gotten just from the letter to the Romans. So the short answer to the question, can grace extend beyond death? Probably. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> but I know that I trust the judge who is coming. I know that in the last day I will see him face to face and the secrets of my heart will be revealed. So that better impact how we start living now. You see how there's never a get out of jail free card 
in Christianity. Remember we spent the whole first two chapters of Romans saying like, I have the circumcision, I have the law, I do not need to worry about condemnation. And Paul was like, "Uh, maybe you should a little bit because these definitions may not be as clear as you think they are. This rain is awesome. (laughs) That's like applause for me. Just kidding. That's not what it is. Do not boast. (laughs) Um, But we do, we don't know hardly anything about what happens after we die, but we do know that we are held by God, and because of Scripture, we know what God is like. And the real key that I think is an important part of do not boast but stand in awe is that God judges not us. So we should follow Christ's command to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Big fan. We should do it. In the Episcopal Church, we should do it a lot more than we do. But we don't get to decide who is saved and who is not. Only Christ decides that. Does that help answer that question? It was like a long (laughs) monologue. You got more answer than you bargained for. People are like, I am never asking a question again. (laughs) We are going to see this, especially the issue of Israel, come into very sharp focus if I can ever get started on this lecture. All right, last week we talked about this very issue, that there is a portion of Israel that Paul calls the remnant that has accepted Christ. For Paul, this would have been a lot more obvious than for us. There, there was a whole community of Jewish Christians. We don't see them that much. Christianity became so Gentile that we don't, we don't know that many Jewish Christians. I've known one. But, he says, so there's this remnant that has been brought into Christ, and then there is the rest of Israel, which he says has been hardened. And the hardening of Israel, as always, was not ambiguous and was not arbitrary, but it was for the sake of the Gentiles. And this is just a historical fact, as I pointed out last time. If Israel had accepted Christ the gospel would never have spread. Christ is the Messiah of Israel. Israel accepts Christ. Sorry, Greeks. (laughs) You're welcome to come worship with us if you like, but we have our Messiah, right? This is the fulfillment. But Paul goes to the Gentiles precisely because his own people do not receive him. And then we talked about this beautiful image, which we're going to talk about more because we're going to pick up at verse 22. Is that where I left off? Did I say verse 22? We'll pick up at verse 22. This beautiful image of the olive tree. And this is an image with deep roots in Scripture um, of Israel as an olive tree that is tended and sometimes pruned by God. So... This olive tree is planted, it's taken root, and some of the branches, the hardened Israel, has been broken off so that wild olive branches may be grafted in. And this is the Gentile church. 
we did not sprout on our own, but are grafted into Israel, and so have roots in Israel. And this is where Paul says, Bill and I were talking about how beautiful this is. What verse is it? Oh, I'm looking in the wrong place. This is verse 20. So, the second half of verse 20. So, do not become proud, but stand in awe. Stand in awe of the fact that God had a chosen people and chose to include the Gentiles too. So, do not boast. Do not think that we are... Like, here's what Paul wants to caution against. It's not that, like, Israel screwed up so bad that God had to choose a new people. Like, eh, that didn't work. I'm choosing a new people. No, no. God, in his grace, opened up the franchise and invited the world in to be his chosen people. And so some of Israel has been hardened, but Paul says this rejection is not final. That they can and will, he's about to show us, be grafted back in. And he also cautions, so remember, in order to get this, we have to think way back to Romans 1. Where in Romans 1, Paul is writing to these probably Gentile Christians who have aligned themselves with the God of Israel. And so sort of start thinking that maybe the rules don't apply to them. Oh, the Greeks, with their temples and their sacrifices and their orgies, like, the Greeks are the bad people. But we over here worship the true God, so we're good people. And Paul says, be careful, because all are under the same curse. He's now cautioning them again. Don't think that just because some of Israel is hardened and you are grafted in that you have a special status in your own right. It is by grace that we are held to the olive tree, not by nature. So do not boast, but stand in awe. that's all we need to say about that. Let's pick up, okay, wait, let me, yeah, I did that. Do not boast with stand in awe. Good job, Barbara. And we reviewed that. Look at this, we're cooking right along. All right, let's pick up at verse 25. We only have to go 25 to 36 today, so we're going to take two verses at a time. Paul is going, well, we'll just read it, Barbara. Don't, like, let Paul say it. You don't have to paraphrase. All right, Romans 11, verse 25 and 26. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brethren. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles comes in, and so all Israel will be saved. That's the first half of verse 26. 25 and 26a. So note the solemnity that underlies this. 
I do not want you to be wise in your own conceits. Lest you think this is about you, I am going to tell you a mystery. A mystery, remember, in Scripture is both something that reveals. It is a truth that is greater than one week, greater than fact, right? And something we can never plumb the depths of. It's not a problem to be solved. That's kind of how we use the phrase mystery. Like, who stole the cookies? I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a truth greater than fact, greater than a problem, right? And it's something we can never plumb the depths of because that's how true it is. So we talk about like the mystery of the incarnation. Who here has like a full grasp on how Jesus can be fully man and fully God? Good. If you'd raise your hand, I was going to ask you to meet me (laughs) in my office afterwards. (laughs) Who here has a full grasp on how God can be one and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It's a mystery. That doesn't mean it's a problem to be solved. It means it's a gift that we plumb the depths of and never get to the bottom of. And this is another mystery. That hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in and so all Israel will be saved. This is why part of Israel, this whole question Paul's been wrestling with for three chapters, why has Israel not accepted their Messiah? A hardening has come on, them, on part of them until all the Gentiles enter in, and then all of Israel will be saved. Note, Paul says the full number of the Gentiles. There are several ways to read this. Some people say the full number means 100%, all of them. This is sort of Paul, the most radically universalist reading of Paul, is that in Christ all are saved. This is not like a woo-woo thing. This understanding goes way back. Lots of people have, have believed this. You don't have to. The church has never settled this question once for all. There's also the possibility that some of the Gentiles will be brought in, a full number that God knows but we don't, Like, 10 out of 10 is a full number, even if there are 80 left over. Do you see what I mean here? Like, that God knows the full number of the Gentiles who will be brought in. I don't, like, have a dog in that fight. Some people get really worked up about it. Um, I don't care, because Jesus is the judge, so I trust whatever he decides. But what is clear is that once the full number of the Gentiles enter in, then all of Israel will be saved. This is radical. And to me, unambiguous. And now, Paul is going to explain how. How, even if you're living in Israel in the first century and you hear about, say you're the high priest, and you hear about Jesus, and you're like, Nope, that sounds like idolatry. I worship the true God, sacrifices at the temple. And then the Romans knock down your temple. So you're like, well, I guess we'll just read the Torah, and that is how we will draw close to the God of Israel, but I'm still not into Jesus. That person is part of Israel, and Paul says he will be saved. How? This is so good. I'm so excited. Okay. (laughs) 
So if, but before I get to how, if we look out and we see that part of Israel, God's people, does not accept their Messiah, why? Because the full number of the Gentiles has not entered in. This is an eschatological hope about the end of times. Once all the Gentiles are brought in, then Israel will be fully included. I have to not lose my place. Okay. Note two, before I get to how, Paul is reversing a traditional Old Testament expectation which is that all of Israel will be saved, and then the Gentiles will enter in. He's reversing that. This is radical. I'm not saying it's not crazy. It is. But it's like good crazy. It's Pauline crazy. Here's just one example. Isaiah 2, 2 to 3. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house, that's Zion, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills and the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob. And then this part is interesting when you know the gospel story. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jesus isn't crucified on a mountain outside of Jerusalem on accident. It's not just because he happened to be born there. But out of Jerusalem, the word of, the, of God goes and brings the Gentiles in. There are many more verses about this. If you would like to look up Isaiah 56, 6 to 7. Isaiah 60, 3 to 14. This is a big deal in Isaiah. Micah 4, 1 to 2. Zechariah 14, verses 16 and 17. So now, Paul is going to show us where he finds in Scripture the, I don't like saying mechanism because it makes it sound like, hang on, let me think of a better word. The saving act by which God will make this happen. The means. The means by which God will bring all of Israel into the fold. This is what he says. He ends the first half of verse 26 with, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Do you see what's going on here? For Paul, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, will be the one to deliver Israel. The deliverer will come from Zion. Paul is quoting here a combination of Isaiah 59, 20-21, and Isaiah 27, verse 9. He's quoting them pretty exactly, so I didn't bother putting them on a slide. But for him, the, the one who comes forth from Zion, the deliverer from Zion, both in context in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that's the Davidic Messiah. That's what all of Israel has been hoping for. The, the descendant of David who will come and save God's people. 
And look what Paul says, Isaiah says, he does. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And remember for Paul, this guy is so good. He's putting all of these pieces together. What is ungodliness? Well, the belief that you can earn righteousness for yourself through works of the law or through a birthright or from, through trying really hard and being a really good person and being a like volunteering in a lot of things and earning a lot of money, right? You see how this cuts both ways? That's ungodliness because you make yourself an idol. And in the last day, the Davidic Messiah, the Deliverer, will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness. He will remove their sins from them which is what Jesus always does. And so he will do it for his people because he's the Messiah of Israel. So all, how is all of Israel saved? Through Jesus, through Christ. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I know who's going to do it. It'll probably look like a king on a cross. And then he says in verse 27, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Remember the covenant, covenants go way back, the covenant with Abraham. You will be a father of many nations and your descendants will number more than the sand of the sea. The covenant with Moses, follow my law, you will be my people and I will be your God. The covenant in David you will sit on the throne forever and your son, your son will sit on the throne forever because you are a man after my own heart. This is the covenant. And Paul, how does God uphold his covenant, his promise to fight for Israel, his promise to be their people? He will send them Christ. Do you see the point here? There isn't like some sort of other mechanism for salvation. It's that it's not like the Gentiles get Jesus and the Jews get somebody else. No, no, just Jesus. <laughs> he is the one through whom all things were made. So, of course, he's the one through whom all things were saved. But Paul isn't worried about his people coming to Christ because the deliverer will go to them. Now, it still grieves him that they are not in fellowship. Remember that little town? These relationships are broken. It breaks Paul's heart that he is cast out from his kinsfolk, that he is not in the body with them, that they are not sharing meals and, and relationship together. But he trusts that the Lord will make things right in the last day. And this is the hope of all of us, right? What we're hoping for, we hope in this life, like, I love this rain, but you could say like, gee, I hope it would stop raining so I could have a picnic. But that's not the kind of hope Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a hope greater than you could imagine. A hope that the God who made the cosmos will restore it to health, 
will make it right. And so he trusts, even though he mourns now, he grieves now, he trusts that all Israel will be brought in and he will be restored to his people in the last day. When Christ fulfills the covenant, because here's the thing, Abraham's descendants have blessed the nations. The Gentiles have been brought in and know the true God and worship the true God and live in relationship with the true God. The covenant with Moses, the giving of the law, God's word, God's wisdom. Jesus says, I do not condemn, come to abolish the law, but fulfill it. Remember when Paul said, Christ is the end, the telos, the goal of the law. So to follow the law is to follow Christ. And the hope of David, that David's son, Bethlehem, city of David, will sit on the throne forever. And so he reigns at the right hand of his father. Do you see how you, all of these covenants, we have to know them in order to make Jesus make sense. It's so much richer than like, Jesus is the thing that keeps me out of hell. I mean, like also true, but it's richer, it's bigger, it's a cosmic picture and it's rooted in Israel. We inherit the covenant because we are grafted into the covenant. We're never going to finish this chapter on time. Uh. Okay. So here is the sort of shape. Paul has been wrestling with this question of what is happening to Israel. This is the shape we get in Romans. First five books, all are under sin. Remember I say this is a part no one ever preaches on. Everyone is under the curse of sin and needs deliverance. Some, the remnant, admit the need for deliverance. We need a Messiah. We can't save ourselves. And they come to Christ. Others are hardened. We don't need a Messiah. I can find Christ through works of the law. And remember, I have suggested this is a warning we should pay attention to even if we are Gentile Christians who have accepted Christ, but keep trying to save ourselves. <laughs> this is a temptation for everybody. And so they stumble. They're not, they haven't accepted their Messiah. But God is faithful to his covenant. So the hardening will not be final, and thus all of Israel, the hardened and the remnant, and the Gentiles who have been grafted in will accept the Messiah that has come from Israel. And so Israel will be saved. This is the mystery that Paul wants us to know. Romans eleven twenty-eight and 29. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. So this is one of those places where the Greek is confusing and the translation is more confusing. In Greek, 
the word of God is not there. So the Greek reads, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for you. So that's confusing. So a lot of modern translations add enemies of God. Kind of seems like a stretch, but they're scholars and I'm not. I'm just a humble country parson. So a better translation, I can read scholars, a more kind of nuanced translation that gets at the sense, and some of you may have translations that read like this. When it says, as regards the gospel, the way this is constructed and the way Paul is using it, I am of the belief that he means the the work of the gospel, the spread of the gospel. So as regards... What has been required for the gospel to the, gen- the Gentiles, they are enemies. This word enemies does not mean combatants. It means in opposition. They are at odds with that spread. And note, this one, the word in opposition, Paul is directly contrasting this with another word, beloved. As regards one thing, they are at odds. But as regards their election, their call, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. Remember, you can't cut off. If the root is good, are not the branches good? If the lump is good, is not the whole dough good? For the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. God has called Israel so he will not cast them off forever. If there's one thing the Old Testament tells us, it's that no matter how many times God's people are hardened against him, he is determined to save them. And now we know how. Gosh, and doesn't this describe all of us? Enemies of God in opposition to the work of God, because we are still under the power of sin. We still, every day, pick up arms for the enemy in this battle against God. Yet for the sake, not of our ancestors, but of Christ, we are beloved. So in that final judgment, When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. So we are beloved for his sake because we are in Christ. So see how this is not just a teaching about other people and what other people do and we get to feel good about ourselves over here? As regards the spread of the gospel, we are enemies of God. We're not all doing it perfect all the time. We're constantly messing up. I'm constantly messing up. But as regards God's call, we are in Christ. So our beloved for his sake. Not because of what we accomplish, but because of who Christ is. Now that is good news. Do, do. Okay. We may be able to do this. Oh, no, we will not be able to. We only have a few verses left. Okay. Romans 11, verse 30. Oh, 
Oh, here, Paul's about to say what I just said. Man, good job, Barbara. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, don't worry, we'll unpack that, so they have now been disobedient in order that the mercy shown to you, by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. For God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. This connects us. We have to keep the first five books of five chapters of Romans in mind. All have sinned. And so mercy can be shown to all. This is the most inclusive thing there is. We talk a lot about inclusivity. Like, we need to be inclusive. Okay, yeah, whatever. I mean, the, how do I put this? The way that phrase is used a lot is used to mean all behavior is equal. We have to accept people no matter what they do and treat them all the same. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about a curse <laughs> that is upon all of us and a savior who is willing to go for the cross to the cross for those who are cursed. So there is no one who has special status. Same curse, same savior. Same problem, same solution. Not like Jesus is a solution to a math problem, but it's not that kind of mystery. And so Israel has no claim based on bloodline alone, but on God's call to them. So we have no claim based on what we do, but on Christ's call to us, being baptized into his death and resurrection. Look how this parallels. First, Paul, Paul's doing this you, they, you, they. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, which means in Greek, um, the, the by means in the interest of, not, it's not like applying it topically like a cream. In the interest of the mercy shown to you, they too may now, and there's a lot of debate about whether that word now belongs there or what it even means, but they may, in this age, before the end of time, receive mercy. So once again, the only thing that has changed is the order, but the outcome is still the same. God will save his people, and there will be people we don't expect. <laughs> who are also saved, i.e. us. And so then we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. There is this glorious hymn to God's inscrutable wisdom. This is the conclusion not only of Paul's writing in Romans 9 to 11, but of everything we've read up to this point. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So the first thing we see is, remember, this connects right back to what Paul was doing in Romans 9. God doesn't operate according to our rules. God can elect Jacob and reject Esau, and we kind of have to just go with it because we don't get to make the rules. And he says, how unsearchable are God's ways. Every time we try to put him in a box, he busts out of those walls. We try to put him in a tomb, and he busts out of that too. (laughs) For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So there are three sort of motifs going on here. The first that I just mentioned is that humans cannot plumb the depths of God's riches. His riches being that superabundant grace, that excess, that redemption, redemption, which remember has a root in, in money, to be redeemed, to be exchanged, to pay for our freedom from slavery. No one can plumb the depths of those riches. This might make me cry. I'm going to try to hold it together. No one knows how unscrutable, oh, the depths of his riches and wisdom and knowledge. Verse 31, wisdom in Scripture is often the wisdom of God shown forth in creation. The pattern of creation revealing the wisdom of God. So this again connects to this cosmic vision. This is how deep it goes. The wisdom he uses in saving the cosmos in a way we did not expect. And then the knowledge of God. And remember, knowledge, God's foreknowledge, is related to election and call. God's knowledge of his people his calling to them, is bigger, more people are called than we expected. The Gentiles being grafted in is not something anyone saw coming, though Paul points out there is a precedent for it in Scripture. God's grace has already exceeded And then note how the last two, or how 34 and 35 match this. So the riches of his wisdom and knowledge, who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. We can't know the depths of it. Who has been his counselor? This relates to Job, right, and to Romans 2, of trying to tell God what to do. Who can give a gift to him that he might be repaid? When God has given you everything, what can we offer back? And then this concluding doxology. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Do you see how Paul catches us up in this sweep, this cosmic sweep? This earth, this creation that has been under the curse of sin in God's knowledge has been caught up and held by him. And he would not let us fall. He, would not, he was not willing to consign us to that curse, to that death 
forever, but to invite us into eternal life through the blood of Christ. And so the power of Christ has overcome the reign of sin. And thus he has drawn all nations. He's opened the door for all people, regardless of birth, regardless of status, regardless of any of the things we say are important to draw into Christ. Because there's only one thing in the end that really matters. And that's the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is the end of Romans 11. (laughs) Next week, we will pick up at Romans 12. Please, I know, I'm sorry I went long. I apologize, Kathy. Um, Try to end your small groups by 11.25 so that people can come back up for food for thought today. So if you could end your small groups just a few minutes early, even though I didn't. Is that next week? Ah, thank you. Okay, good. I Take as long as you need in small groups because Food for Thought isn't until next week. And also, if you haven't registered for Food for Thought, please register. I did it on purpose, see? <laughs> thank you.